Hi, I'm Rodney Edwards, and you're listening to Human Nature. In each episode, I'll talk to a special guest about dealing with life, the highs, the lows, and everything in between. Their thoughts on emotion, love, loss, and the meaning of life. In this week's episode, Eamon Holmes, a son, a brother, a father, a husband, and one of the best-known faces on television for more than 40 years. But what makes him tick? This is the personal side of a very public figure. I do feel, I do feel the clock's ticking, yeah, and you sort of feel, I want more time, I want more time. I certainly don't want to live well into my 90s just to live long. There are a lot of loose ends, a lot of things that, you know, you wonder where they said, what were your last words, what way did you last deal with that person? Um, sudden death is a very, very difficult thing to deal with. People wake up in the morning wanting to be outraged and offended by anything that... Um, I haven't even asked you about 5G yet. 5G is quite simple and quite straightforward. I never once said 5G spread coronavirus. I did well up with that. I could well up with that by talking to you um, about that. I said, well, could you just tell me where you want her to sit? Or do you want us to do this interview standing? She said, yes, we'll do the interview standing. I said, well, I said, between you and me, that ain't going to happen, right? I said, so what's the problem? So how are you? Okay, I'm just trying to balance myself with you. We were, of course, supposed to meet at the start of the year to do this, and it didn't work out. And you were, you were going to come down to see me in beautiful Fermanagh, but a few things cropped up at my end. The wettest uh, county in Ireland. But the most beautiful. But the most beautiful. Our Lake District, absolutely lovely. And you've been yeah. here many times. One of the things that lockdown, I think, um, makes you very aware of is how you must see more and do more and spend more time doing the things you want with the people you want in the places where you want to be. And I suppose the thing that has, has struck me is actually how little time I have, which is my own, to do what I, what I may want. It may not even be valuable or purposeful or anything, but it would just be my time. And I get a bit, um, I'm a bit aware of that. And I'm a bit envious of that um, now. And, um, and sometimes people send me, as they, they've done today, they send me, um, um, what are they called? Little, little sheets and adverts in, in local papers. Of, and, and you'll have this at the Impartial Reporter of places where I used to appear when I was young, you know, when I was uh, working for Ulster Television. And there was this um, situation in the early 80s that there were nightclubs, Rodney, opening up everywhere, everywhere. You know, all the hotels and the uh, the GAA clubs all around Fermanagh uh, and whatever. And they wanted um, they wanted people to appear there, but they, the people who were the big acts, the Radio 1 DJs, the Page 3 girls, all these people who were um, presenting Top of the Pops and whatever, they cost big money. So there would either be someone like me as a support, as a warm-up for them, or there would be me if they, just, if they just weren't in that league, you know, and I was working in Ulster Television. I mean, I wasn't a DJ, but I was, um, this, this became this became a regular weekend thing, you know, on a Friday or Saturday or indeed sometimes often the Sunday, Sunday evening. And what's interesting now is that people send me these flyers uh, for places I've appeared in. 
And it's like yesterday, and I remember driving there in the dead of night and coming back. And I always remember when you, when you drove to Enniskillen, the sun was always in your eyes going down the M1 because you were, you were heading out west. And often when I finished whatever I was doing, you were driving back and the sun was coming up again because the sun was coming up at four in the morning and things. And, you know, it was, and they're, they're very, very happy, very happy memory. I'm just realizing I should really put this, maybe turn your volume up. If I press record, it says, please request re- record permission from the meeting host. Okay, well, let me, I, if I, there's a button here, which I press, which now says record. It's no. going off again. You press something that's going off. Let me see. I'm she. Uh, this is where I need one of my sons here to do to do things. But um, if you think you're recording it, then that's okay, isn't it? Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. I'll, I'll put your volume up so I think I can hear you now. I don't need the headphones. How's lockdown? And more importantly, how's Maggie? Your border collie. Uh, Ma- Maggie is. Uh, where is Maggie? Maggie's here. Maggie's under the desk. Matter of fact, uh, you have sort of. You can see her outline somewhere around there. Um, Beautiful so dog. She's under the desk, but um, you'll find out when Maggie's here if the doorbell goes or someone arrives, she'll be on it. But um, yeah, yeah. So lockdown is um, lockdown's been a very interesting journey. Um, like many people, I would have set myself targets. You know that you come out of this; it's not wasted time. And um, but I think it's time that's changed. And, and some of the things that I've been doing, like just, you know, uh, clearing out stuff at home, stuff that you just would not have had time for at all uh, to do. And maybe it didn't happen week one or week two or week three, and you're a bit hard on yourself. But now by week 10, it's happening. It's happening. Things are changing. Um, and, and And I suppose... Well, I think I'm changing. I'm disappointed that you think that the world has stopped. There's less noise, there's less pollution, there are less people, there's less lots of things. But actually, the world will not change. Um, I suppose we just go back to the way we were. You were, of course, born in Belfast, as was I. And you were almost born on your mother Josie's birthday. Tell me about that. Uh, so the date would have been the uh, 3rd of December. My mother's birthday is on the 4th of December. So basically what happened is that um, she, uh, I was born at a quarter to midnight, um, which was 15 minutes before mommy's birthday. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that was a close so, one. So the way it works is my birthday's on the 3rd, hers is on the 4th. And um, yeah, so it makes us, makes us very alike and very close, I suppose. Yeah, I know how much your mother means to you. So you must obviously be missing her very much now during this coronavirus lockdown. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's the biggest um, sort of what am I trying to say? It's the biggest hurt in all of this that um, not being able to travel back home um, to Belfast and, um, and and obviously also doing it in a way to um, secure her, make her safe because she's ninety two years of age. She's very frail. And um, you just have to minimise the risk as best you can. And if she would only be accessible to modern technology like this, I mean, I think things would be easier, but she's very resistant to all sorts of uh, modern technology, I'm afraid. Well, the narrow hallway, the small parlour, the coal hole, as you, you called it under the stairs, and the scullery, what was it like growing up at 161 New Lodge Road? 
Belfast. Yeah, well, it doesn't exist anymore, which is very funny. But they do. They actually, whatever way they reconstructed the new Lodge Road, they have, I think, a number 157 and 159 and a 163. But they, 161, they didn't rebuild it. Um, and um, my brother sent me a picture um, last week of someone in an adjacent street, totally unrelated picture. But in the background, was our house and uh, we were beside a, a fruit and vegetable general store um, beside that and um, I just remember it's really sort of happy magical times I think you have to put that down to your parents because they create the environment and uh, so I don't think we were people who who had much and but I was never aware of deprivation I was never aware we hadn't got much and we had you know my mom still very high standards in us. And um, and my dad was just like the most affable, funny man that um, you could imagine. Everybody was my dad's friend. Everybody, he knew everybody. Everybody knew him as well. And um, so I have a very um, happy memory. I, I, knew, I know that when the troubles began in 1968, we had to move. And also our family was, was getting bigger. We would say it literally was a um, two-up two down uh, terraced house and um, we had to find another another council house after that after my uh, fourth uh, my third brother four was then that would have been in total um, so we had to find a, a another house at that stage and we did we moved and we moved into a, a different environment in North Belfast but we moved to a house that had a garden which was absolutely amazing and then as the troubles developed that became your your world. You did everything in that back garden. I mean, you played the FA Cup final there. You played Wimbledon there. You ran the Grand National there. You did, you did everything. And um, the troubles impacted, uh, I think, terribly uh, on me in terms of how you were restricted and what you um, could do or couldn't do. And I often yearned, I think, as a teenager, I would think that how come you see all these American movies and they go to drive-ins and they have takeaways and. The, they go to hamburger joints and they have barn dances and they do all these things. And where, you know, for people like me in interface areas, this wasn't um, possible really. So they were very, very frightening times and they changed, I think, the sort of person you were and um, and what, what you could do. But I think, I always think I'm very, very lucky to have come through the troubles um, you know, but they were they were incredible years of your life to be to have taken away, you know, between 1968 and I suppose, you know, 1980. I became a reporter, so therefore, I suppose the difference was that um, I I felt it was then work, and it, and you look upon it differently. It's um, um, you're less a, a victim and you're, you're you're more in control of what's going on. Just want to tell you, I'm just aware there's sprinklers on in the background there. And I do want to say to anybody, say we're wasting water. That's all recycled water from an underground tank. That's all we use. It looks like a very nice garden as well. You're out <laughs> sunning yourself in that garden during the week, were you? Uh, yeah, oh, I slave in that garden, I can tell you that. If you could relive one moment from your childhood, what would you do again? What would it be? Oh. Well, funny enough, I only think of, of happy things, and they're only things that um, you would uh, you would you would do again. I remember 
you know, mass gatherings. And it was always when relatives turned up at your, you know, your very small house or whatever, there was um, alcohol taken, there were cigarettes smoked, there was singing. I always remember people burst into song. Song was an amazing thing. And I, I think, do people sing anymore in other people's houses? And, and, and I think, what a lovely, uh, and there's storytelling. It was all very, very happy. I remember the first time I was re- really aware of unhappiness was when the 11 plus loomed. And this was the first big hurdle in my life. And I thought it was all quite fun up until now, but now it's got to be quite serious. I wasn't from an academic household. And um, I went to what I thought was a very lovely primary school, a very mixed, um, no, when I say mixed, it was, it was mixed socially. It wasn't mixed sexually. There were no gender. There was only boys. Um, and there was, there was no other religions. It was a, it was a Catholic school. And um, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was all lovely up until then. And then there was the 11 plus. And then you sweated, they sweated big time. And for some strange reason, I was able to jump that hurdle. And from a class of 44, I think there were only eight of us or so passed. And we went on into um, grammar school. And I think for a lot of people, that determined who they were from 11 years of age and what they went on to do professionally. And I know the divide between the lads who would pass and the lads who wouldn't be a difference between being white-collar workers or blue-collar workers. And I don't think there was much of a difference in the intelligence and you know the backgrounds and things, but it is what it is. Um, I, I went to grammar school and I had the most amazing education at St. Malachy's College in Belfast. And um, so funny enough, Rodney, I don't look back at my life and say I'd like a second crack at something really because although I can remember tension, I can remember sadness, I can remember being incredibly frightened during the troubles, outside personal bereavement and things like that, there was nothing horrible. You know, I, 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 I've nothing horrible things that would happen to me in terms of um, the troubles of things. I dealt with them. I think luck, I think luck plays a big part in, in what happens. Some people say luck is, you know, picking a, a ballot out of a bucket and winning a prize. Other people would say things go your way. That's either luck or that's fate or that's talent. And maybe the harder you work, the luckier you get. But um, I think by and large, I think by and large, life has been quite kind to me. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy. What did living within that community teach you about life and death, particularly during the Troubles? I still think we live in an angry world today. And I, I think human life around the world is cheap. And what I don't understand is I can understand winding people up. I can understand banter. I can understand lots of things like that. But I don't understand why I would go to a football match, which I've always loved throughout my life and wanting to smash a bottle over somebody's head or get involved in physical violence. I don't really, you know, and, and as you're talking to me now about it, it comes back to me like shopping on a Saturday afternoon with your parents or whatever, usually with my mum, and full-scale riots in Royal Avenue in Belfast, you know, between gangs. Um, you know, really horrible things happening, witnessing, seeing seeing bombs going off, seeing awful things burning down, all, all, all sorts of things like that. 
And today we see George Floyd in America and how people um, so want to vent their anger and their frustration about things. Uh, Brexit is another thing, even coronavirus. Uh, people get angry. What you know, people get angry very, very quickly. And is it is it is it something now because of social media they're more listened to or they've got more of a platform to do it? But I, I'm not sure I've ever been overly angry about anything. Or, or, or you know, I mean, I, I like to think I do the right thing. I think I'm quite a balanced person, and I can be. I can stand back from something and see, well, that's obviously wrong, that's obviously right, or that shouldn't be. But um, I don't think there are any causes outside my family I would want to die for, really. Many young men joined groups during the Troubles, such as the IRA, and many young Catholic men. You didn't. Why not? Well, I think um, it would have been, well, luck would have something to do with it. Um, influence from your parents simply saying, I think my, my parents were never political. I, I do think my, I was aware subconsciously of my dad being socialist and being, um, he, he always would say about politicians, you know, very few of them are for the working man. And that's always stayed to me, stayed with me. I've always been probably, um, you know, socialist or quite middle of the road, but I mean, I'm sure I lean towards being socialist in terms of my political views because of my, my dad. And I can see my dad was a great admirer of Jerry Fitt, politician Jerry Fitt, or Lord Jerry Fitt, as he became. And, um, and there was a decency about Jerry Fitt and there was, um, there was just something about, um, I think my parents' attitude were, never you mind about that. You get on with what you're doing or what you're supposed to do. And they set a very good example. But they were never, they were never overtly political um, about anything. And I think they just cared about their sons. I mean, there were five boys um, in the house, and that would have been a big thing for my mum and dad to steer a line as to looking after us and how we would have seen ourselves. But I suppose my thing was that during the Troubles, I became more um, fixated about why it was happening and trying to analyse why it was happening and, you know, being influenced by, because you weren't allowed out or, you know, you didn't go out. I watched an awful lot of TV. I was influenced by the TV that I, that I watched and I was very aware of who the reporters were at the time and what stations they worked for and what they did. And I just became more and more interested in that and being that, doing that. How would you describe freedom in your own words? Do you feel free? Me? I would say anyway, I would say no, but you're, you're probably not free to give true opinions about things because it's not worth the blooming hassle, really. It's not worth, no one can say, oh, I see your point. I see where you're coming from in that. But I personally don't agree or whatever. Everybody just wants to, you know, be outraged. People wake up in the morning wanting to be outraged and offended by anything that... Um, I haven't even asked you about 5G yet. Well, 5G is quite simple and quite straightforward. I never once said 5G spread coronavirus. I said I respect anybody's right to question any narrative. 
but I'm not allowed to say anything on those things. And do you know what? I don't care enough about 5G really to have an opinion or to care. And what disappoints me are a lot of people who deliberately, deliberately misinterpret what you say. And they either comment on things because they haven't seen the interview or read the quote, because they just can, because they can. So, you know, freedom, never really thought about it. I go about my, my own way. I've never felt unfree. I've never felt the need to be free and run naked in the fields or anything else. So <laughs> I think that makes me quite, I mean, does that make me quite, I don't know. I don't know. I don't. Do you think crying is a sign of weakness? And when did you last cry? Oh, my goodness. Um, I don't think crying is a sign of weakness in the slightest. Um, I shed a tear last night where a very close friend told me that she had, uh, not only she has cancer, her cancer's returned. Um, so after three years of her cancer not being there. So I did well up with that. I could well up with that while I'm talking to you um, about that. But I feel for her. I feel for her family. Um, I feel for her because she's done all the right things in terms of diet, exercise, everything she could do. But um, it's back and it's quite aggressive. And, um, you know, so crying's never... Um, annoyed me. I think I have a, uh, a trait of being sentimental. I think things like um, music triggers me, um, but they probably trigger memories. I'm a great romantic. I'm a great sentimentalist. It's a very Irish thing. It's, um, I sort of, um, if I could erase one um, trait from me, I think it would be sentimentality. I think it, think it preys too much on my mind. I think it influences me too much. What is your earliest memory of love? Love? My granny, I suppose. My grandmother, my granny Fitzsimmons. Um, so I was four when she died of breast cancer, funny enough. Um, I always remember a very, very close bond with her. But the reason I remember close bond, I remember her smell, I remember how she looks. I remember how she would take me by the hand and we would go and feed the ducks in Alexander Park in Belfast and... Um, but she often found time to be with me. And then I remember one day she just whispered to me, don't tell any of the rest of them. And I said, what, Granny? She said, you're my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> I always remember that. She could have been lying to me, but I thought it, it was... Um, so, so I was very, very devoted. I, I think I was more aware that I loved my granny, maybe more so before I knew that I loved my parents or I loved my brothers. Yeah. Of course, you, you married Gabrielle and, and years later separated in, in 95, but you had three children together, Rebecca, Niall and Declan. What do your children mean to you? Oh, everything. Um, we have a very good blended extended family now. We add Jack to that. I never talk in terms of my three children. I talk in terms of my four children. And um, they're all very close. And um, funny enough, I was... Lockdown has enabled me to uh, put together photograph albums and things while I've been off, which is great. So we had a few surprise gatherings for me for my 60th birthday last December. And, um, and, I, and I was placing together photographs of them all um, uh, during that. But they're very, I've got um, one of my sons, Niall, um, works with me here in London. Um, and uh, he, he produced my radio show and uh, Jack will 
wants to go into journalism, but hopefully me or his mum didn't um, influence him. So Jack and Niall, Jack's 18, Niall's 26, they're very close. So they're all very close. They're all very close. And we sit down, we do all these Zooms. And so, you know, the four of us and their partners, whatever we would, we would, I think this is a great thing, what we do now in terms of uh, Zoom and Skype and all these vision things that happen. Um, I, I, I've now, I, and I end up, Rodney, speaking to you like this, which is great, to um, you know, friends I have in Glasgow, to friends I have in Watford, friends I have in other parts of London. It's fine saying you can be in London and you have friends, but honestly, I'm, I'm not kidding you. It would be easier for me to go from Belfast to visit you in Enniskillen and return off an evening. And you'd say, why would you do that? And then evening, that's what you're expected to do in London. Southwest London and somebody lives in northeast London River takes 90 minutes to get to them and back again and whatever. And you sort of think, well, why am I, why am I doing all this? It's, in a, it's a huge um, area to cover and traffic and congestion and traffic lights and all that sort of thing. But, um, you know, so actually I love this. I love this video revolution that's going on. Well, growing up, you were very close to your father, Leonard. What important life lessons did he teach you? Um, you're not aware of it at the time. But, um, you know, my dad, um, there was always a dignity and respect with my dad um, that he, you know, he, he always said, treat people the way you would wish to be treated yourself. And I find that as a TV personality, people constantly say, oh, you and Ruth are so normal. Oh, oh, you know, it's really nice meeting you or whatever. Or what is everyone else like? And I suppose we've just got to, it's, it's from your roots and how your parents expected you to treat other people. I suppose that's just, if it just comes naturally and it's not an act, and then it's a, it's a relatively easy thing to do. My, my dad uh, was a carpet fitter. And um, when I laugh at it now because, you know, usually at weekends, my mom would be so delighted that he would take one, two, three, four, five of us out of the house and put us in his, his carpet van um, to give her a bit of a break. I remember one of the most wonderful things was we were work, he was working in a department store, the name of which it was in Ann Street. And it was like one of those independent stores that you don't get anymore now, but it was pretty big. And um, on a Sunday, he was refitting this um, department store, doing some work in it. So he brought us, there was three of us, me, my brother Brian, my brother Leonard, and he brought us into this department store. It was like your dream. There was the toy department, you know, the clothes department, the sports department. There was everything there. And all he spent his time doing was, oh, don't touch anything. Don't touch anything. You can't touch anything. We had the whole place to ourselves. You could go up and down the escalators. You could run around. You could, And it was the most amazing thing. I mean, there's probably very, very few people in life can say they had a whole department store to themselves. My dad was always meticulously, as, 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 as my mum, they, they were very honest people. They were, um, I wouldn't say they were, I mean, they, were, they weren't overly religious, but they were very moral. So, I mean, like things like thieving or cheating or whatever, just that wasn't part of the deal. So, um, so those lessons, so many lessons from my, from my dad, you know, always remember if a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing well. And there's not many things I can do well. So I suppose I applied myself to the one thing that I seemed to be doing quite well, which was broadcast. And, and I did throw myself into that. And I, I always thought because I wasn't good enough to be a carpet fitter, all my other brothers can, can do it. Two of them have chosen to do it. 
um, I've always felt a bit of a failure and therefore sort of want to prove myself in my field, even though it's not a, it's not a real sort of um, grafting field or a field where you could be overly proud of um, regarding as work. You know, it's not work I talk to people. And, it's, um, and you know, that other thing, you know, Dad always said to, to us, you know, do what you want to do, do what you'd like to do, because if you if you do something you like, you'll never work a day in your life. And, you know, he, he would always say that. And he was always very encouraging. He, he was very supportive of me, whereas my mother just wanted me to, when I got a place in journalism, in journalism college, she basically said, you're not going there. You're going to have to get a wage and bring it into this house, which is what I uh, had to do. So I spent a year working in Primark our pre-mark, and um, it was so tough. It was very good for me because it was so tough, it was so hard um, to be a trainee manager and so much expected of it, so much pressure, um, that I really thought, um, no, I'm leaving this, and packing this in, I'll work at night at a bar, I'll bring money into the house, but I am going to do journalism. And, and I suppose the year in pre-mark made me think, you know, you're so lucky to be doing something that you love, so don't mess it up. When you left Belfast for Manchester all those years ago, your father sang Danny Boy for you, and that's such a beautiful thing to do. What do you think when you picture that moment? Well, you asked me earlier about, you know, do you cry or does it make you emotional? But that would always make me well up. And I was at a function not so long ago, and I was with my very good friend for a long time, Barry McGuigan, boxer, and um, somebody sang Danny Boy. And I could just feel him shaking and crying beside me for a whole plethora of reasons, but basically because his dad used to go into the ring and sing it before Barry's big fights. So for the both of us, Barry knew it meant something to me and I knew it meant something to him. And Barry's a very emotional fellow, very, very emotional fellow as well. And um, so for dad to sing that, because he wouldn't be, you know, he wouldn't have been regarded as a singer or do that. That was a big special thing. That's a special thing for him to do that. But that is, that is one of those sort of, um, those are things that don't really happen anymore, you know, or don't happen in the world I mix in anymore. But um, it's, uh, that meant, that meant a lot. And it was, um, it would be better than any letter he could have ever penned um, to, to, to tell me how he was feeling about me leaving. I mean, my mother, I swear to you, this is not a lie, right? It's not a lie. So just two weeks ago, um, I'm on the phone to my mother, and she said, I said, are you okay, Mum? She said, I'm not okay, because I was just thinking. I was just thinking here. And I said, before I die, I'm going to ask Ariaman. I'm going to ask him something. I said, what, Mummy? What, what are you going to ask me? And she said, why did you leave here and go to England for? Why <laughs> just am well, speechless at times? I go, oh, I'm like, where do I begin? Where do I begin with this? It's like being a footballer and you're playing for Cliftonville and Man United say they want to sign you. I said, so you have to decide whether you stay at Cliftonville or you go and take a risk with the big time. But why would you go? Why would you go? So she doesn't understand. She just does not comprehend why I would have gone to England. And, um, you know, and gosh, and yet the one thing I'm absolutely sure about, I never wanted to do it at the time, never wanted to go to England, absolutely didn't want to go. But when they came in for me and said, right, will you join the BBC National um, to, to, to broadcast daytime television? 
from Manchester. Um, I knew I had to go because I had been doing the top job in Northern Ireland for six years and I was only 26 years of age. So, you know, I'd have been doing it 10 years, I'd have been 30 and Ulster Television and the viewers would have been well within their right to say, right, we've had enough of him. Let's have somebody else on. And where do I go at 30? Where, where was I going to go? And I thought, I have to get out of here before they get rid of me. In five years' time, Eamon, you'll be the same age your father was when he died. Your, your dad died when he was 65 from a heart attack. That was back yeah. in 1991. Do you think about your mortality? Oh, very definitely, yeah. I think there's a certain morbidity, we think. Um, you've only got so many years left. And that's why I think lockdown um, has concentrated my mind in terms of, right, the clock's ticking. What have you got to do while you're still alive, while you're still able-bodied? Um, and I think it should work for a lot of us. We, we don't know the brevity of life. We don't know uh, how long we have left. And we have a duty to live it as best as we can. So I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do, my friend, but I do feel... I do feel the clock's ticking in. You sort of feel, I want more time, I want more time. I certainly don't want to live well into my 90s just to live long. I I don't want to live longer not to live better. I just want to lead a good life. I don't, you know, I don't want to live a long life and it not to be a better life. So that would be my view on it. Of course, you married Ruth Langsford in 2010 and you met her in 1987. So what kept you from tying the knot? I'll tell you what kept me because... um, Ruth, Ruth never asked for marriage at any stage. So she wasn't, she wasn't um, a girl, a woman who looked for the white wedding and the, you know, the, big, the big day and all that sort of thing. So that was really, if she had been insistent on it, then, then I would have been, but, but she wasn't. No. What's the difference between falling in love and being in love? I have fallen in love. I have been in love. Um, I'm in love with love. I like I like love. I'm a, a romantic person. I think that people who don't have love in their life, I find it, I find it sad. I find it um, incomprehensible. So, so whether you love a person, uh, whether you love an animal, whether you love God, whether you love a car, there are many things in life that I would look at and I would say, yes, I, I really love that, or I love doing this, and. The feeling of loving, we started talking about the dog very early on there, and the feeling, a different, completely different type of love that came into my life eight years ago with that dog, um, to, to be able to adopt a rescue dog um, and to then feel the unconditional love that a dog gives you. And, and there's that saying, you know, I hope I become the person that my dog thinks I am because you just if a human being taught, uh, treated you the way a dog treats you, there'd be, there'd be no troubles in the world between anybody. And that's why I don't really understand people who abuse animals. I just don't. Maggie's given me an understanding and an insight into the wider animal world. And I now watch a lot of animal documentaries and worry a lot about animal welfare and worry about um, myself and my attitude towards animals and how hypocritical I may be um, with that and if I could be a better person. But um, yeah, I think, there's, I think love comes in many forms for many people. And if you have it in your life, you're very blessed. Ruth lost her sister 
Julia to suicide last year. And can you just explain the impact of losing someone in this way and, and on what that has on, on a family? Well, it's just the unanswered questions. I mean, I experienced sudden death with my father and there are a lot of loose ends, a lot of things that, you know, you wonder where they said, what were your last words? What way did you last deal with that person? Um, sudden death is a very, very difficult thing to deal with. And um, with, with, with Julia... You know, she was just the most lovely, genteel, kind person. I often used to joke to her and Ruth, I got the wrong sister. Um, but she was, a, she was a lovely, lovely person tortured by um, mental depression. And, um, and Ruth was very, very caring, very loving to her. And I think there can often be a, a guilt when you think, well, should I have been there? Where was I? I was in. Belfast, Ruth was in London and her sister was in East Sussex. And, you know, what can you do? You can't press the rewind button. And, you know, what I would honestly say is that we were always very supportive. We were a loving family. Ruth could not have done more for her sister. And um, and I think, um, you know, it, it takes a lot of getting over that, a lot of getting over that. You know, What's relevant to me is that I that I'm part of a, uh, a panel, a working group in North Belfast, which is looking at the situation there, and it has got the highest suicide rate, not just in Belfast, Northern Ireland, Ireland, UK, but in Europe. And you know, I was born, bred, grew up in North Belfast. I had the same opportunities or, or lack of opportunities, or I think I had. And I sit with the panel and we talk and we say, and I say, look, please, can I just ask you all, why has this not happened to me? Or, you know, explain this to me. And people are so good and people who have studied this. And it can be a number of factors. It can be everything. It can be the power and love of a family around you. It can be influence of, of um, alcohol or drugs. It can be um, lack of opportunity. For, for people, lack of education, not, not, none of these things, none of these things are absolute in themselves, but some people are particularly susceptible to it. The, the, the question is, I don't know why. I'm just, I'm just saying, they, they would have said to me, you had stable parents, you didn't have a drink problem, you um, had a good education. I mean, too many people have suffered this, and, and we can't really say, oh, it's all down to this, it's all down to that. But it's down to something really awful in somebody's mind when they think that is the only way out. And, um, and that's what we've got to learn about, study about, and find out more about. So it's one thing being able to say to people, be kind, be kind to everybody. But if people aren't being kind to you, what's, what's the answer to that? I think it's an interesting dilemma um, as to are we just making people softer and more vulnerable um or you know what used to be a bad day or something going against you now it turns out to be something that needs medical attention from from kids and all i would i would be very careful about 
telling people be kind when not everybody's going to be kind back when people wake up people watch this interview and listen to what you and i have to say and there'd be people outraged for some reason or other outraged even home said this even home said that though even home's not allowed to view on this or, or that or i don't like him i don't like what he said they are outraged and you sort of think well why are you outraged why look into your own lives i don't really I don't think I'm somebody that has any influence over how other people think. Other people may think I have. I don't think I have. Why Why do you face so much criticism? I know there's so many people who love and adore you. You know that. Why do you think that is? Well, like a lot of people, um, I sell uh, newspapers or I um, direct traffic to websites that are very keen to sensationalize and draw an audience. So, you know, all of this plays into Trump's hands of fake news because you've got to look and you say, really, is that what was said? I present, any time I present this morning live, which is every school holiday, every half term, every Friday, um, there will be clickbait headlines. Even when we said this did that, stormed off, insults, viewers aghast. And it's not true reporting because there may be one complaint against you, but that's what makes the headline. And there may be 99 other people that say, that was brilliant, well done, even fantastic. That's not, that's not reported. So it's not the journalism I learned. Um, it's not the journalism I want to be part of. It's just a sad situation, but the consequences to all of these things for lots of people. Look, you know, I've come through a lot in my life and I... You know, I sort of um, probably have a thicker skin than than most. But there you are. If you have people who don't have opinions and people who don't say things and people who are not there, I mean, most of all, I'm there on behalf of the viewer. That's what I'm there for. But if you don't have that, you just get a vanilla form of presenter. Now, that's fine. You feel I'm sort of too long in the tooth now to maybe be vanilla. I used to, chocolate on top. I used to watch you on GMTV before I went to school. And I, I remember that infamous David Blaine interview. <laughs> who's been your most, well, who's been the most fun to interview and who's been the most difficult to interview in more recent years? Well, the difficult thing's easy because you get people um, who come from America usually and they've got people around them and they, they have a list of demands and conditions. And there's, there's lots of people who I can see this as lots of people I'd like to name, but all this will end up as clickbait names for, you know, publicizing your podcast, Rodney, which, um, and I'll take all the flack for. But um, so you used to be able to tell stories whereby you could regale people with the bad behavior of certain people, but you can't now because it becomes too sensationalist. But um, there, was, there was somebody who arrived in from America recently and they said, um, they said, uh, at the last minute, they stood on the, the edge of the studio this morning and her people said, she can't sit there. Why? We did, there's a couch on this program. I said, yeah, well, if you had done your research for, for, for the program, you know there's a couch for the program. So no one told us a couch. I said, well, the best will in the world. The researchers are all, I can't stand people being sycophantic around all these PR people. We're there to ask questions, not to ask the questions they want to ask. And and, you, and the PR people are saying, no, this can't happen. I said, well, what is the problem here? 
she can't sit here because there's a couch. I said, well, could you just tell me where you want her to sit? Or do you want us to do this interview standing? She said, yes, we'll do the interview standing. I said, well, I said, between you and me, that ain't going to happen, right? I said, so what's the problem? And they go, and we're on a commercial break, and they go, um, Miss So-and-so is allergic to uh, materials in a couch. So you're not ever allowed to speak to Miss So-and-so, which I don't agree with. I just think, right, shut up, you, right? I go, right, Miss So-and-so, what, what, rather than what you are allergic to, what are you not allergic to? And she said, I'm not allergic to linen. And I said, well, this is your lucky day. You see that couch over there? That couch not only is linen, that couch is Ulster linen, where I am from. I said, and I have had this specially flown in and made because I, like you, have the same allergy to everything, to velvet, to silk, to cotton, to whatever, whatever. But anyway, we've got linen. We've got linen there, right, for you now. Really? And I went, oh, come over and try it. She sat down. I said, does not feel great? Yeah, really? This is linen. Where is this from? I said, Northern Ireland. It's from Derry, right? That's where we get it and specially made for me in my contract. So we did the Bloomin' interview. She gets off this thing and the, the researchers run to me and say, how did you know that was linen? How do you know? I said, I have no idea. Well, there's absolutely no idea. I said, well, it's too late to even sit and worry about it. Just tell her it's linen. She's happy. She hasn't come out in a rash. Everything's fine. <laughs> there you go. And with a lot of these people, it's about, um, you know, pushing it as far as they can with their people pushing it uh, to see how much respect they can get or how big stars they are or whatever. And it is, it is childlike. It is absolutely childlike. And they're always a type of person. And then you get big stars. You get, you know, Piers Brosnan. You get uh, 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 John Travolta. You Robin Williams. You Tom Hanks. You get people like this. Not a single request. Not, not no conditions to anything. They're giving, they're welcoming, they're lovely Kelsey Grammer, Donald Sutherland, Kiefer Sutherland, you know, just absolute joys to be with. And the loveliest man of all time I, I, as a star, most ordinary star I, I have ever met and had the privilege to know. There's not many of them you get to know. As a matter of fact, I can't really think of another one. It was Roger Moore, Sir Roger Moore. And, um, he became, over the course of 15 years or so, as close of even a friend, a friend, and um, I had marvellous times with him and um, just a lovely man. And the, the great privilege was to be invited to his, to be one of 100 people invited to his memorial service at, at the James Bond studio at Pinewood. Um, but, the, but, you know, again, that's, that's what shows you what class is and what stars are. And, there's so many people, believe me, I would like to name names specific. There's not a lot of people who you want to interview. You want to be people who are really interested and have lived the life. And you know, But I'm lucky. I mean, to talk to people is a, lovely, is a lovely privilege. You, of course, were the king of morning TV. What do you think now of, of Piers Morgan, who is essentially in your old chair? I think Piers uh, saved morning TV, or breakfast TV, not morning TV, breakfast TV is a difference. Um, I think it was going down a, a, um, a drain of vanilla blandness. Um, and, and I think he came there at a time and shook it up and he was the right man in the right place 
at the right time. And um, so far, so good, you know. But the thing about Piers is, and probably why a lot of people watch him is, you don't know how long it lasts. You don't know how long he will last. You don't know when he will have had enough or whatever. But then at least he's worth watching. He's worth waking up to. Um, and it takes different types of things. You know, I think uh, on, on BBC in the morning, Dan Walker is a very, very good presenter, probably more in the mold of what I I'm somewhere in between Dan Walker and, and Piers Morgan, to be quite truthful. But um, I, I think that um, it takes all sorts. And I think we should have a choice as to what to watch. And if you don't like it, there's not a channel switch. switch over. But I think Piers has been the saviour of breakfast television. Yeah. Where do you find pace? Um, I I find peace in an awful lot of areas. I find peace with my family. I find peace with my dog. I find peace watching TV. I find peace watching football. I find peace doing ch- my charity work. I find peace. I'm a relatively I'm, I'm relatively okay. I mean, it's um, it's the I suppose the only hassle comes from being in the public eye. That's the only that's the only hassle. But you know. I'm not a bad man. I don't do bad things. I'm I'm at ease with myself, and I I suppose I'm relatively uh, simple. Is the word I don't I don't require a lot. I don't require the biggest best car, or the biggest best house, or the biggest best of anything. I like good things, but um, I'm I'm okay. Yeah, you've been in the public eye now for what over forty years. Yeah, yeah. Why, why is it a hassle? Well, it's a hassle because you're always on duty. It's a hassle because you're always supposed to be accountable. It's a hassle because as soon as you put this podcast out, you'll find out it's a hassle to me because everything you say is, is deemed to be uh, controversial or uh, taken the wrong way. So from that point of view, when you don't mean any harm, you don't mean and you're simply trying to steer the case on behalf of other people, or whatever, it's somehow controversial. It's somehow controversial if you um, defend cabin crew who are, you know, losing their jobs. It's controversial if you talk about tax matters. It's controversial if uh, you don't say about other things. If you don't support things, you know, there's a terrible pressure on social media to either support something or not support something. So the idea is that increasingly, the, the lot of the public love the idea that they can determine. Uh, your life and uh, how you are perceived through them and how often they can complain about you or whatever. So I suppose that's why it's, why it's hassle. Does that mean you're always watching what you say and you're always worrying about the next, you know, tweet storm or whatever happens online on social media? Well, yes and no. You've got to be true to yourself and you've got to be responsible. But you know, when people try and make out, make out you've made a gaffe or you've been deliberately controversial, you look at something and you think, really? Really? What What is so wrong or controversial about that? The only thing's wrong about it is from an easy target. It's from me who they know they can kick me as much as they want sort of things. You know, that's the way That's the way it is. And it's, you know, not a lot of people just have opinions about you. You're like Marmite, but I either love you or hate you. So, you know, as you reflect on your life, Eamon, thus far, if you tell your younger self one thing, what would it be? It'll go very quickly. Make the most of it. Enjoy it more. Um, you know, I was 
was always very serious about my career. Um, but I think it had to be because as a freelance, you just don't know where the next job's coming from. You don't know what will what will happen next. So I suppose there's nothing really much I could do any differently than than happen. Um, I had some wonderful years. I mean, my my six years at Ulster Television was I don't know how to describe it to you. It was like a university for for broadcast, it was what we were allowed to do, what we did do, working with top professionals in a newsroom in a war situation, and then trying to bring normality to that situation as well, working under the wing of you know amazing people like Jackie Fullerton and being there with Glory Honeyford, watching her close up. And you know, we're friends to this day, um, with that sort of thing. So many top pros, top producers, top journalists. Um that was an absolute, that was a privilege to work there. You were back in Northern Ireland in 1998 as well to cover the Oma bomb. Did that have an impact on you? Very much so, yeah. Um, it, I will never forget the smell. I will never forget the um, glass under my feet. Um, and the surreal thing was the... Royal Ulster Constabulary there who had the place cordoned off, whatever. And when I arrived, reporting in the dead of night, whatever, for um, GMTV, they, um, I would talk to these people and I, and I would say, I would say to the officers and things, I'd just walk up and talk to them, not as a reporter, but just sort of as me. And the next minute they would they would say, Eamon, come over here and we'll show you this, or Eamon, do that. Well, there was blooming uproar from the rest of the press that were there, blooming uproar. And the point was, maybe I thought, well, maybe A, if you were pleasant and nice to the officers that were there, maybe B, if you were known to them, which you're not, and C, I was one of, one of ours there. And I was very um, privileged and very... Um, just respectful of the of the access that I was given because I mean there's there's a hardness with a lot of a lot of interviews that people do and people know they're not going to get that from me but um, so I was very grateful to the officers for access it was given and, and what actually happened was I stepped back and I said you know what if it's all annoying you so much, I'm not cross this line or I'll not do this. And I stood there. Um, and it's not that. I don't find there's any real brotherhood um, within media ranks. It is everybody for themselves and getting what you, you can. That wasn't what was interesting to me. What was interesting to me was being respectful to the dead, um, being, you know, there were, there were families there that I've been in touch with, you know, I've kept in touch with. There's one family living in Surrey here. Um, lost their young lad and I think all of us look and we say that could have been my mother my father my sister my brother my son my daughter um with with all of that and um and that that yes of course that made a huge impact in the area Oma and Dunblane the Dunblane shootings those primary school um teachers or, or pupils being there being there being in Dunblane I think, again, because I could look at those pictures and I could see my own children in 
those classroom pictures um, with that. But also just when you when you come across, sometimes, you know, as a reporter, you've got to balance both sides of the story. And all, not sometimes, all times you're supposed to do this. But, you know, I don't believe media is impartial. You know, it should be, but it isn't. And I don't believe, sometimes I think, how can you be impartial? How could you be impartial about Thomas Hamilton in Dunblane? Just one mad, perverted sicko and a gun killing school children. How do you put the other side of the story to that? Well, what's next for Eamon Holmes? I saw your, your tweet last night, that wonderful photograph of a, of a young 21-year-old Eamon on UTV. Would you like to do that again? Yeah, yeah, I would. I would. Um, I think so. I think I uh, can do that job. Um, there's a lot of things you could do. I think, you know, somewhere. Um, I think the business has changed and who they want for business has changed. It's fine. I think the future probably for broadcasting is not on big channels. It's probably this. It's probably creating your own channel, you know, so whether it's Rodney Edwards uh, TV channel or Raymond Holmes TV channel. Um, I'm not saying that would happen. I'm saying that that's what will end up um, because viewing becomes so disparate for these things. But um, I'd like to think there's a, a talk show or something, a uh, chat show left in me. don't want anything overly controversial or um, combative or whatever. I just actually like that Irish thing, talking to people, um, which often doesn't happen in England because interviews are so small and often can be quite trivial. What I love about shows like The Late Late Show and, and all the other uh, talk shows, like Mary McCallaghan or whatever that RTE do, is that they they give long, healthy respect to conversation. And I think that is a, a wonderful thing. And I mean, the thinking is, maybe today's audience doesn't want that, maybe it doesn't, I don't know, but it seems to be working in RTE, seems to work, you know, all the time there. We did a, uh, a you know, I love, when people complain about interviews and they'll say, look at Eamon Holmes on this show doing this, whatever. You think, sometimes you think, do you think I had any say in that? Do you think, were you not part of the production meeting where I said, this is rubbish, this is, you know, this is nonsense? But you sort of have to do it anyway. You know, it's it's amazing where you get when it goes wrong, you get all the blame, and when it goes right, somebody else gets all the praise. But you you have a fabulous sense of humor, and that's evident by the fact that I think that, so. Yeah, I think so. That's not not evident not evident to everybody. I can assure you. Well, evident in so far as you you, you allow yourself to go on anything that Keith Lemon does. But he is. The nicest guy. He is the absolute loveliest fella, and um, I'm very, very fond of him. Yeah. Well, last question, Eamon. This podcast is called Human Nature. What does it mean to be human? Wow. Well, I don't really know what it doesn't mean to be human. I mean, I, I'm I'm totally aware and confident that I am human. Therefore, you know, it's it's when you're not human. It's when you become somebody that you're not, when you pretend to be something that you're not, when you stand for something that you don't believe in, um, when you are um, uh, uh, impermeable to loss and suffering around you, when you're not kind, when you're not, um, when you don't see the funny side of things. And it amazes me there are a lot of people like that who just wake up wanting to be insulted. They don't see the funny side of things. Um, intolerance. Um, bigotry, racism, all those things are, are the opposite of 
of not being human. Uh, being human is to try and do your best, not always succeeding, but at least if you try, in the words of my father, if a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing well. And if you fail at that, well, you're only human. Eamon Holmes, thank you. Thank you, Rodney Edwards.